0: Section sixteen of a history of the four Georges in four volumes, Volume One by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter fourteen: Walpole in power as well as office. Walpole was now Prime Minister. The King wished to reward him for his services by conferring a peerage on him, but this honor Walpole steadily declined. One of his biographers says that his refusal at first appears extraordinary. It ought not to appear extraordinary at first or at last. Walpole knew that the sceptre of government in England had passed to the House of Commons. He would have been unwise and inconsistent indeed if, at his time of life, he had consented to renounce the influence and the power which a seat in the House gave him for the comparative insignificance and obscurity of a seat in the House of Lords he accepted a title for his eldest son, who was made Baron Walpole, but for himself he preferred to keep to the field in which he had won his name, and where he could make his influence and power felt all over the land. We may anticipate the course of events, and say at once that hardly ever before in the history of English political life, and hardly ever since Walpole's time, has a minister had so long a run of power his long administration as mr Green well says is almost without a history it is almost without a history that is to say in the ordinary sense of the word for the most part the steady movement of england's progress remains during long years and years undisturbed by any event of great dramatic interest at home or abroad but the period of walpole's long and successful administration was none the less a period of the highest importance in english history it was a time of almost uninterrupted national development in the right direction and almost unbroken national prosperity the foreign policy of walpole was on the whole no less sound and just than his policy at home his first ambition was to keep england out of wars with foreign powers yet this was not the ambition which some later statesmen especially for example mr bright have owned the ambition to keep England free of any foreign policy whatever. Such an ambition was not Walpole's, and such an ambition at Walpole's time it would have been all but impossible to realize. Walpole knew well that there was no way of keeping England out of foreign wars at that season of political growth but by securing for her a commanding influence in continental affairs such influence he set himself to establish and he succeeded in establishing it by friendly and satisfactory alliances with france and other powers turning back for a moment into the political affairs of a year or two previous we may remark that one of the consequences of the mississippi scheme and the reign of mr law in france had been the recall of lord stair from the french court to which he was accredited as english ambassador Lord Stair quarrelled with law when law was all-powerful, and in order to propitiate the financial dictator it was found convenient to recall Stair from Paris. England had been well served by him as her ambassador at the French court. We have already said something of Lord Stair, his ability, courage, and dexterity, his winning ways, and his fearless spirit. John Dalrymple, second Earl of Stair, was one of the remarkable men of his time. He was a scholar and an orator, a soldier and a diplomatist. He had fought with conspicuous bravery and skill under William Third and under Marlborough. He appears to have combined a daring that looked like recklessness with a cool calculation which made it prudence. On Marlborough's fall, Lord Stair fell with him. He was deprived of all his public offices, and was plunged into a condition of something like poverty. When George I came to the throne, Stair was taken into favor again, and as a special tribute to his diplomatic capacity, was sent to represent England at the court of France. There he displayed consummate sagacity, foresight, and firmness. He contrived to make himself acquainted beforehand with everything the Jacobites were doing. This, as may be seen by Bolingbroke's complaints, was easy enough at one time, but the adherents of James Stuart began after a while to learn prudence, and some of their enterprises were conducted up to a certain point with much craft and caution. Lord Stair, however, always contrived to get the information he wanted. Some of the arts by which he accomplished this purpose were not, perhaps, such as great diplomatists of our time would have cared to practise. He bribed with liberal hand he kept persons of all kinds in his pay he bribed french officials and even french ministers he got to know all that was done in the most secret councils of the state he used to go about the capital in disguise in order to find out what people were saying in the wine-shops and coffee-houses often after he had entertained a brilliant company of guests at a state dinner he would make some excuse to his friends for quitting them abruptly say that he had received dispatches which required his instant attention, leave the company to be entertained by his wife, withdraw to his study, there quietly change his clothes, and then wander out to one of his nightly visitations of taverns and coffee-houses. He paid court to great ladies, flattered them, allowed them to win money at cards from him, and even made love to them, for the sake of getting some political secrets out of them. He had a noble and stately presence, a handsome face and charming manners. He is said to have been the most polite and well-bred man of his time. It is of him the story is told about the test of good breeding which the King of France applied and acknowledged. Louis Fourteenth had heard it said that Stair was the best-bred man of his day. The King invited Stair to drive out with him. As they were about to enter the carriage, the King signed to the English ambassador to go first. Stair bowed and entered the carriage. The world is right about Lord Stair, said the king. I never before saw a man who would not have troubled me with excuses and ceremony. The French government naturally feared that the recall of Lord Stair might be marked by a change in the friendly disposition of England. This fear became greater on the death of Stanhope, The English government, however, took steps to reassure the regent of France. Townsend himself wrote at once to Cardinal Dubois, promising to maintain as before a cordial friendship with the French government. Walpole was entirely imbued with the instincts of such a policy. The chief disturbing influence in continental politics arose from the anxiety of Spain to recover Gibraltar and Minorca, and, in fact, to get back again all that had been taken from her by the Treaty of Utrecht. The territorial and other arrangements which concluded with the Treaty of Utrecht made themselves the central point of all the foreign policy of that time. These states were concerned to maintain the treaty. Those were eager to break through its bonds. It holds in the politics of that day the place which was held by the Treaty of Vienna at a later period, there is always much of the hypocritical about the manner in which treaties of that highly artificial nature are made. No state really intends to hold by them any longer than she finds that they serve her own interests. If they are imposed upon a state and are injurious to her, that state never means to submit to them any longer than she is actually under compulsion. New means and impulses to break away from such bonds are given to those inclined that way in the fact that the arrangements are usually made without the slightest concern for the populations of the countries concerned, but only for dynastic or other political considerations. The pride of the Spanish people was so much hurt by some of the conditions of the Treaty of Utrecht that a Spanish sovereign or minister would always be popular, who could point to his people a way to escape from its bonds or to rend them in pieces. Spain, therefore, was always looking out for new alliances. She saw, at one time, a fresh chance for trying her policy, and she held out every inducement in her power to the Emperor Charles VI and to Russia to enter into a combination against France and England. The Emperor was without a son, and, in consequence, had issued his famous pragmatic sanction, providing that his hereditary dominions in Austria, Hungary, and Bohemia should descend to his daughter Maria Theresa. The great powers of Europe had not as yet seen fit to guarantee or even recognize this succession. Spain held out the temptation to the emperor of her own guarantee to the pragmatic sanction and of several important concessions in the matter of trade and commerce to Austria on consideration that the emperor should assist Spain to recover her lost territory. Catherine, the wife of Peter the Great, was now governing Russia and was entering into secret negotiations with Spain and with the emperor. Townsend and Walpole understood all that was going on and succeeded in making a defensive treaty between England France and Prussia. Prussia, to be sure, did not long hold to the treaty, and her withdrawal gave a new stimulus to the machinations of the Emperor and Philip of Spain. And in 1727, Philip actually ventured to lay siege to Gibraltar. England, France, and Holland, however, held firmly together. The Russian Empress suddenly died. The Emperor Charles was not inclined to risk much and Spain finally had to come to terms with England and her allies. These troubles might have proved serious but for the determined policy of Townsend and of Walpole. We have not thought it necessary to weary our readers with the details of this little running fire of dispute which was kept up for many years between England and Spain. We saw in an earlier chapter how the quarrel began and what the elements were which fed it and kept it burning. This latter passage is really only a continuation of the former, both except for the sake of mere continuity of historic narrative, might have been told as one story, and indeed would perhaps not have required many sentences for the telling. Walpole applied himself at home to the work of what has since been called peace, retrenchment, and reform. He was the first great English finance minister perhaps we may say he was the first english minister who ever sincerely regarded the development of national prosperity the just and equal distribution of taxation and the lightening of the load of financial burdens as the most important business of a statesman the whole political and social conditions of the country were changing under his wise and beneficent system of administration population was steadily increasing some of the great rising towns had doubled their numbers since walpole's career began agriculture was better in its systems and was brightening the face of the country everywhere the farmer had almost ceased for the time to grumble the labourer was well fed and not too heavily worked we do not mean to say that walpole's administration was the one cause of all this improvement in town and country but most assuredly the peace and the security of peace which Walpole's administration conferred was of direct and material influence in the growing prosperity of the nation. His financial systems lightened the burdens of taxation, distributed the load more equally everywhere, and enabled the state to get the best revenue possible at the lowest cost and with the least effort. It might almost be said that Walpole anticipated free trade the royal speech from the throne at the opening of parliament on october nineteenth seventeen twenty one declared it to be very obvious that nothing would more conduce to the obtaining so public a good the extension of our commerce than to make the exportation of our manufactures and the importation of the commodities used in the manufacturing of them as practicable and as easy as may be by this means the balance of trade may be preserved in our favor our navigation increased and greater numbers of our poor employed i must therefore the speech went on recommend to you gentlemen of the house of commons to consider how far the duties upon these branches may be taken off and replaced without any violation of public faith or laying any new burden upon my people and i promise myself that by a due consideration of this matter, the produce of those duties, compared with the infinite advantages that will accrue to the kingdom by their being taken off, will be found so inconsiderable as to leave little room for any difficulties or objections. In furtherance of the policy indicated in these passages of the royal speech, more than one hundred articles of British manufacture were allowed to be exported free of duty, while some forty articles of raw material were allowed to be imported in the same manner walpole was anxious to make a full use of this system of indirect taxation he desired to levy and collect taxes in such a manner as to avoid the losses imposed upon the revenue by smuggling and by various forms of fraud his principle was that the necessaries of life and the raw materials from which our manufactures were to be made ought to remain as far as possible free of taxation the whole history of our financial systems since walpole's time has been a history of the gradual development of his economic principles there has been of course Reaction now and then, and sometimes the councils of statesmen appear for a while to have been under the absolute domination of the policy which he strove to supplant. But the reaction has only been for seasons, while the progress of Walpole's policy has been steady. We have now, in 1884, nearly accomplished the financial task Walpole would, if he could, have accomplished a century and a half earlier no one can deny that Walpole was an unscrupulous minister. He would gladly have carried out the best policy by the best means, but where this was not practicable or convenient, he was perfectly willing to carry out a noble policy by the vilest methods. He was not himself avaricious. He was not open to the temptations of money. He had a fortune large enough for him, and he spent it freely, but he was willing to bribe and corrupt all those of whom he could make any use. Under his rule, corruption became a settled parliamentary system. He had done, more than any other man, to make the House of Commons the most powerful factor in the government of England. He had, therefore, made a seat in the House of Commons an object of the highest ambition. To sit in that house made the obscurest country gentleman a power in the state. Naturally, therefore, a seat in the House of Commons was struggled for, scrambled for, fought for, obtained at any cost of money, influence, time, and temper. Naturally, also, a seat thus obtained was a possession through which recompense of some kind was expected. Those who buy their seats naturally expect to sell their votes. At least that was so in the days of Walpole. In times nearer to our own, England has seen a condition of things in which public opinion and the development of a sort of national conscience absolutely prevented members from taking bribes, although it allowed them the most liberal use of bribery and corruption in the obtaining of their seats. The Member of Parliament who twenty or thirty years ago would have bought his seat by means of the most unblushing and shameless corruption would no more have thought of selling his vote to a minister for a money payment than he would have thought of selling his wife at Smithfield. But in Walpole's time, the man who bought his seat was ready to sell his vote. Walpole the minister was willing to buy the vote of any man who would sell it. He was lavish in the gift of lucrative offices, of rich sinecures, of pensions, and even of bribes in a lump sum, money down. He would bribe a member's wife, if that were more convenient, than openly to bribe the member himself. He had no particular choice as to whether the bribe should be direct or indirect, open or secret. He wanted to get the vote. He was willing to pay the price, and he cared not who knew of the arrangement. We have already mentioned that the saying ascribed to him about every man having his price was never uttered by him. What he said probably was that each of these men alluding to a certain group or party had his price. He is reported to have said that he never knew any woman who would not take money, except one noble lady, whom he named, and she, he said, took diamonds. He acted consistently and was not ashamed. He was incorrupt himself. He was even, in that sense, incorruptible. But in order to gain his own public purposes, wise and just as they were, he was willing to corrupt a whole house of commons, and would not have shrunk from corrupting a nation. It ought to be pointed out that the very pacific nature of Walpole's policy and the security and steadiness of his administration made it sometimes all the more necessary for him to have recourse to questionable methods. Great controversies of imperial or national interest, controversies which stir the hearts of men, which appeal to their principles and awaken their passions, did not often arise during his long tenure of power. Agitations of this kind, whatever trouble and disturbance they may bring with them, have a purifying effect upon the political atmosphere. Only a very ignoble creature is to be bribed out of his opinions when some interest is at stake on which his heart, his training, and his associations have already taught him to take sides. Walpole kept the nation out of such controversies for the most part, and one result was that small political combinations of various kinds were free to form themselves around him, beneath him, and against him. The House of Commons sometimes threatened to dissolve itself into a number of little separate sections or factions, none of them representing any real principle or having more than a temporary attraction of cohesion. Walpole was again and again, placed in the position of having to encounter some little faction of this kind by open exercise of power or by the process of corruption and he usually found the latter course more convenient and ready nor could such a man at any period of english history have remained long without more or less formidable rivals walpole himself must have known well enough that the death of men like sunderland or the death of any number of men could not as long as england was herself secure him for long an undisturbed political field with no head raised against him a country like this is never so barren of political intellect and courage as to admit of a long dictatorship in political life walpole had already one rising rival in the person of lord carteret afterwards earl of granville john carteret was born April 22nd, 1690, and was only five years old when the death of his father, the first Lord Carteret, made him a member of the House of Lords. He distinguished himself greatly at Oxford and entered very early into public life. He was from the beginning a favorite of George I, and by the influence of Stanhope was entrusted with various diplomatic missions of more or less importance in 1721 he was actually appointed ambassador to the court of france the death of craggs the secretary of state however made a vacancy in the administration and the place was at once assigned to carteret carteret was one of those men whose genius we have to believe in rather on the faith of contemporary judgment than by reason of any track of its own it has left behind The unanimous opinion of all who knew him, and more especially of those who were commonly brought into contact with him, was that Carteret possessed the rarest combination of statesmanlike and literary gifts. Probably no English public man ever exhibited in a higher degree the qualities that bring success in politics and the qualities that bring success in literature. It seems strange to have to say this when one remembers a man like Bolingbroke and a man like Burke, but it is certain that neither Bolingbroke nor Burke could boast of such scholarship and accomplishments as those of Carteret. He was a profound classical scholar. He was a master of French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, German, and Swedish. His scientific knowledge was extraordinary for that time, He was a close student of the history of past and passing time. He was deeply interested in constitutional law, and had a passion for church history. He was a great parliamentary debater. Some say he was even a great orator. He was prompt and bold in his decisions. He was not afraid of any enterprise. He was not depressed or abashed by failure. He could take fortunes, buffets, and rewards with equal thanks large brains and small affections are according to mr disraeli the essential qualities for success in public life carteret had large brains and small affections he had no friendships and no enmities like fox he was a bad hater but unlike fox he had not a heart to love he was fond of books and of wine and of women he was a great drinker of wine even for those days of deep drink. Beneath all the apparent energy and daring of his character, there lay a voluptuous love of ease and languor. He was not a lazy man, but his inclination was always to be an indolent man. He leaped up to sudden political action when the call came, like Sardanapalus leaping up to the inevitable fight. But like Sardanapalus, he would have been always glad to lie down again and loll in ease the moment the necessity for action had passed away. No doubt his daily allowance of Burgundy, a very liberal and generous allowance, had a good deal to do with his tendency to indolence. Whatever the reason, it is certain that with all his magnificent gifts and his splendid chances he did nothing great, and has left no abiding mark in history. Every one who came near him seems to have regarded him as a master spirit. Chesterfield said of him, When he dies, the ablest head in England dies, too. Take it for all in all. Horace Walpole declares him to be superior in one set of qualities to his father, Sir Robert Walpole, and in others to the great Lord Chatham. Why did they send you here? Swift said to Carteret, with rough good humor, when Carteret came over to Dublin to be Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. You are not fit for this place. Let them send us back our boobies. Carteret's fame has always seemed to us like the fame of Sheridan's Begum speech. Such poor records as we have of that speech seem hardly to hint at any extraordinary eloquence, yet the absolutely unanimous opinion of all that heard it, of all the orators and critics and statesmen of the time was that so great a speech had never before been spoken in Parliament. These men can hardly have been all wrong, one would think, and yet, on the other hand, it is not easy to believe that those who made such record of the speech as we have can have purposely left out all the eloquence, the wit, and the argument. In like manner, readers of this day may perplex themselves about the fame of Carteret, All the men who knew him can hardly have been mistaken when they concurred in giving him credit for surpassing genius, and yet we find no evidence of that genius either in the literature or the political history of England. Carteret had one great advantage over Walpole and over all his contemporaries in political life. He was able to speak German fluently, he was able to talk for hours with the king in the king's own guttural tongue the king clung to carteret's companionship because of his german while walpole was trying to instil his policy and counsels into george's mind through the non-conducting medium of very bad latin while other ministers were endeavouring to approach the royal intelligence by means of french which they spoke badly and he understood imperfectly carteret could rattle away in idiomatic german and could amuse the royal humour even with voluble german slang carteret had come into public life under the influence of lord sunderland and lord stanhope and he regarded himself as the successor to their policy he never considered himself as quite in understanding and harmony with Townshend and walpole his principal idea was that the time had passed when it was proper or expedient to exclude the tories or the high churchmen from the political service of the crown he desired to enlarge the basis of administration by admitting some of the more plastic and progressive of the tories to a share in it there was however something more than a conflict of political views between carteret and walpole walpole's ambition was to be the constitutional dictator of england we do not say that this was a mere personal ambition on the contrary we believe walpole acted on the honest conviction that he knew better than any other man how England ought to be governed. He was sure, and reasonably sure, that no other statesman could play the game so well. He therefore claimed the right to play it. Carteret, on the other hand, was far too strong a man to be quietly pushed into the background. He was determined that if he remained in the service of the state, he would be a statesman and not a clerk. Therefore, While Carteret and Walpole were colleagues, there was always a struggle going on between them, and like all the political struggles of the time, it had a great deal of underhand influence and the worst kind of petticoat influence engaged in it. One of the king's mistresses, the most influential of them, gave all her support to Walpole. Another royal paramour lent her aid to Carteret's side. Carteret played into the king's hands as regarded the Hanoverian policy and was for taking strong measures against Russia. Townsend and Walpole would hear of no schemes which threatened to entangle England in war for the sake of Hanoverian interests. George liked Carteret and was captivated by his policy as well as by his personal qualities, but he could not help seeing that Townsend's advice was the sounder. And that no man could manage the finances like Walpole, George went to Hanover in the summer of seventeen twenty three and both the secretaries of state went with him. This was something unusual and even unprecedented, but the king would not do without the companionship of Carteret, and knew that he could not do without the advice of Townsend, so both Townsend and Carteret went with his Majesty to herenhausen, and Walpole had the whole business of administration in his own hands at home a very paltry and pitiful intrigue at length settled the question between townsend and carteret a marriage had been arranged between a niece or so-called niece of one of george's mistresses and the son of la vriere the french secretary of state madame la vriere insisted as a condition of the marriage that her husband should be made a duke and it was assumed that this could be brought about by the influence of the English government. King George was anxious that the marriage should take place, and Carteret, of course, was willing to assist him. The English ambassador at the court of France was a man named Sir Luke Schaub, by birth a Swiss, who had been Stanhope's secretary, and by Stanhope's influence was pushed up in the diplomatic service. Sir Luke Schaub was, in close understanding with Carteret, and was strongly hostile to Townsend and Walpole of this fact, Townsend was well aware, and he took care that Schaupe should be closely watched in Paris. Schaupe was instructed by Carteret to do all he could in order to obtain the dukedom for Madame Lavriere's husband. Cardinal Dubois died and his place in the councils of the Duke of Orleans was taken by Count Noce, who was believed to be hostile to England. This fact gave Townsend an excuse for suggesting to the king that someone should be sent to Paris to watch over the action of the French government and the conduct of the English ambassador in such a manner, so Townsend wrote from Hanover to Walpole, as may neither hurt Sir Luke Shalp's credit with the Duke of Orleans, nor create a jealousy in Sir Luke of the king's intending to withdraw his confidence from him. This was, of course, exactly what Townsend wanted to do, to induce the king to withdraw his confidence from poor Sir Luke. The king agreed that it was necessary someone, in whose fidelity and dexterity he can depend, should be sent from England to Hanover, to take Paris on his way hither under pretense of curiosity to see that place, and without owning to anyone living the business he is employed in. The person selected for this somewhat delicate mission was Horace Walpole, Robert Walpole's only surviving brother. Horace Walpole acquitted himself very cleverly of the task assigned to him. He was a man of uncouth manners, but of some shrewd ability and of varied experience. He had been a soldier with Stanhope before acting as Under Secretary of State to Townsend. He had managed to distinguish himself in Parliament and in diplomacy. He soon contrived to obtain the ear of the Duke of Orléans, and he found that Sir Luke Schaub had been deceiving himself and his sovereign about the prospect of La Vriere's dukedom. Philip of Orléans told Horace Walpole, frankly, that there never was the slightest idea of giving such a dukedom, and added that the dignity of France would be compromised if such a concession were made, in order to enable the King of England to marry his bastard daughter so the duke put it into the french noblesse sir luke schaub's haste and indiscreet zeal had in fact brought his sovereign into discredit and even compromised the good understanding between england and france philip of orleans died almost immediately his death was sudden but he had long run a course which set all laws of health at defiance he stuck to his pleasures to the very last died one might say in harness his successor in the administration of france under the young king louis the fifteenth who had just been declared of age was the Duke de bourbon philip's equal perhaps in profligacy but not by any means his equal in capacity horace walpole won over the new administrator the duc de bourbon told him that sir luke schaub was obnoxious to every one in the french court and that he was not fit by birth, breeding, or capacity to represent England there. We need not follow the intrigue through all its turns and twists. Walpole and Townsend succeeded. Schaub was recalled. Horace Walpole was appointed ambassador in his place. The recall of Schaub involved the fall of Carteret. Carteret, however, was not a man to be rudely thrust out of office, and a soft fall was therefore prepared for him, he was made Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. He knew that he was defeated. Then, as at a later day, and at an earlier, the Viceroyalty of Ireland was the gilding which enabled a man to gulp down the bitter pill of political failure. When Lord John Russell obtained the dismissal of Lord Palmerston from his cabinet in 1851, he endeavoured, somewhat awkwardly, to soften the blow By offering to his dispossessed rival the position of Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Lord Palmerston understood the meaning of the offer and treated it, as was but natural, with open contempt. Carteret acted otherwise. Probably he felt within himself that he was not destined to a great political career. In any case, he accepted the offer with perfect good humor, declaring that, on the whole, he thought he should be much more pleasantly situated as a dictator in Dublin than as the servant of a dictator in London. End of chapter 14